Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium. And we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is ZibbyOwens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. I am obsessed with Slumberkins. They're these collections of stuffed animals and loveys that come with books. And they're so much more than that. Slumberkins were developed by a therapist and an educator using research-based techniques to help teach children how to understand and support their feelings. So these are almost emotional intelligence teaching animals. My kids are just obsessed. I mean, they fight over all of these things so much. And each one comes with a book. And in the book, you do things like recite your feelings and uh, learn about different emotions. There's the caring crew of animals, the confidence crew. There's the resilience crew. It's really amazing. They have great gifts for newborn parents. And they're giving my listeners and followers Zibby 10, 10% off your first purchase. The code is Zibby 10. So go to slumberkins.com check it out. Your kids will love them. And you will love the fact that they help the kids fall asleep better. They create an activity that you can do with your kids, reading, reciting. They even have like digital books that you can do as activities with your kids. I am just such a huge fan of this brand and what it does for families and how it will help kids and also the fun that it brings into the household. So go to Slumberkins, code Zibby10 will get you 10% off your first purchase. Enjoy! Gail Crowther is the author of Three Martini Afternoons at the Ritz, The Rebellion of Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. Gail is a freelance writer, researcher, and academic. She's also the author of The Haunted Reader and Sylvia Plath, and the co-author of Sylvia Plath in Devon, A Year's Turning, and These Ghostly Archives, The Unearthing of Sylvia Plath. 
Gail divides her time between the north of England with her dog, George, and London. As a feminist vegan, she engages with politics concerning gender, power, and animal rights. And you will hear in the episode about how she got a PhD in a different topic. Welcome, Gail. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, your book, Three Martini Afternoons at the Ritz, The Rebellion of Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. First of all, you are like the foremost scholar on Sylvia Plath. You must be the most accomplished Sylvia Plath scholar in the world. Is that true, pretty much? Well, I think that's very kind of you to say, but I think there are there are many really amazing Plath scholars out there, and I don't think I could take a, a top spot <laughs> But certainly, I spent a long time researching Sylvia Plath and writing about her. And this is actually my fourth book about her. So, you know, I've dedicated quite a lot of time to her, really. I do want to talk about this book, but I first just need to know, like, what draws you so much to her? Why dedicate your professional life to delving so deep into another woman's career and life and history? And like, what is it, do you think, that draws you so much to her? Yeah, I mean, it it happened by accident, which is a very odd thing, really. I was 13 years old at school in a library, and we were just told to spend the afternoon choosing a book and reading a book. And so I just randomly went to the poetry section and, and pulled out this collection, which was randomly, very randomly, Sylvia Plath. And I opened the book, and it was the poem Mirror that started with the line, I'm silver and exact. And my 13 year old self just honestly, fell into this book and I've never got out again. And I just, I'd never heard a voice like it. And then from the age of 13 onwards, I just started reading everything that she'd written. But then oddly, my background isn't in English literature and it isn't in literary theory either. I'm a sociologist. So I'm coming at it from, from quite an odd angle, really, I think. So looking at the, I suppose, the cultural figure of Plath, you know, and why she has such significance for so many people, and my PhD was about why people become so attached to her. And I spent four years researching that, and I still don't have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> ah. I mean, obviously, she's an, she's an incredible wife. Four, four years well spent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, so that I think there are, there are lots of reasons. But people seem to have a very special relationship to Plath, and, and I can obviously relate to that. But I still never really quite managed to know why. Hmm. So interesting. Well, you also, in so in Three Martini Afternoons of the Ritz, you also track an interesting path at all the different intersections of Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton's lives, how they grew up, you know, only four years apart and in basically the same town and outside Boston, and how there were so many parallels between the two and yet so many differences and how they culminated finally in them getting to know each other after this course they were both enrolled in. But you use it as a great way to really shine a light on on what they were even writing about and some of their innermost feelings and how those came out over time. And I was particularly struck by their shared frustration at their roles sort of as these, you know, middle upper middle class white women trapped in the roles of mother and the limitations on their roles in society at the time and how they fought against that. So I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about that angle of the two of them and how they kind of dealt with that, the, the mothering section, the the feelings about their sort of lot in life when, you know, if they had been born today, things would be very different. But 
they'd probably be like bloggers and whatever. But anyway, tell me a little more about that. Well, I, I suppose I was quite interested in the ways in which, I mean, the, the kind of subtitle of the book is The Rebellion of Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. And I was quite interested in all of the ways that they kicked against that 1950s message of what women should be and the type of wife they should be, the type of mother that they should be. And I was quite interested to explore what parts of that 1950s very patriarchal ideology they had absorbed, which parts of it that they decided to just completely boot out of their lives. And it was interesting to see, you could see them balancing that tension. And particularly with Plath, I think you can see that in so much as she was determined to be this amazing writer and that her time should be at her own and that she would carve out writing time, she still wanted to be the perfect wife and the perfect mother and the perfect cook and the perfect homekeeper and all of these different things that she was trying to manage at the same time. Whereas I think Sexton was a bit more relaxed about that. And I think she was much bolder and, and had seemed to have much more confidence about taking time for herself, grasping it, not caring if her house was messy. You know, she she had someone who, who came in to clean for her to do her laundry. Her husband did the cooking and, and all of the shopping for food. Um, she had family members who drove the children to school and took them to, to their lessons after school. So I think Sexton was more comfortable with rejecting those traditional expectations of what she should have been doing as a wife and a mother, whereas Plath seemed to be very much trying to handle it all and do it all and, and be exceptionally brilliant at all of it as well. There were a couple times that I just wanted to read a quote or two. Hold on, let me see if I can find it. A little piece more on growing up so constrained. You pointed out there were all these ads and everything in the culture at the time was pointing towards how women belonged at home and, you know, get your wife this Hoover vacuum and, you know, that's what she needs. And there was just so much pressure to be a wife. And yet they had these thoughts and feelings that they expressed in their writing, particularly the quotes from Sylvia Plath in her early work about not wanting to feel this trap and saying that her writing was really the only way out of it. So how do you think they used their writing to kind of escape the the trap of where they felt themselves ended up to be? <laughs> that was not my most articulate question, but I think you got the point. <laughs> I, I, no, I think you're completely right. I think they actually directly used their writing to manage the rest of their lives. And certainly, certainly Plath is very open about this. And there are at least, just off the top of my head, there are at least two letters that I can think of where she actually states, I can only be a wife and mother because I write. And that she would not be able to do all of that domestic you know, take on that domestic responsibility if she didn't have time to write. And so I think that, that writing was absolutely vital for both of them. And certainly in terms of, I think for Sexton, writing was vital in terms of keeping her quite healthy too. You know, her daughter, um, Linda Gray Sexton, who's written two very eloquent, articulate memoirs about her, her mum and and growing up with her mum talks about how, you know, my mum was never crazy when she wrote, you know, that she, she kind of, you know, the times that Anne Sexton, I think, 
became most ill were the times, Linda said, when her typewriter fell silent. So in that sense, I think writing for them was performed a number of, of different purposes. And what's interesting is that both of them also saw it as a business too. I mean, it was a career, it was a job, it was a business. And although they both state, you know, we don't do this to make money. We do this because we have to write. They both also say, but also we like to get paid and we want to get paid fairly and we should get paid. Sexton in particular, she was like a one woman campaign activist for, for fair pay, you know, before all of that was even kind of in our social consciousness. Her letters are astounding when you read them. And then when she didn't win the the prize, there was some prize that went to the third member of their sort of trifecta in the class. And she was so upset that she hadn't won it when her poem was probably better. Just she's like, a man got it and this is why. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. I love how you also talk in this book about the effects of their upbringing and how there's this cultural sort of assumption that these women and mental illness and things that have happened with them are only because of their own makeup when in fact their upbringing have has completely dictated or at least has a huge part in how they've ended up how they ended up becoming and what happened with their early lives and you know the nine years after Sylvia Plath's dad passed away and how her life sort of took on a totally different shape after that in these years that she doesn't talk about and her relationship with her mother who ended up having to take on the burden of being a single mom with two little kids and having to support the family and not necessarily being warm and loving and and then you contrast to you know Anne Sexton and her very you know question mark, question mark relationship with Nana and how that might have affected her upbringing and the things you inherit essentially that can change your mental makeup. Tell me a little more about your thoughts on what's happened, like what actually happened in the family and how that translated into how perhaps their emotional makeup evolved over time. Yeah. I mean, I think if I can just sort of just set off by saying, I think, I mean, one of the, the main reasons for writing this book was because I find it very tiresome and very annoying when women like Plath and Sexton are written off as these crazy poets. You know, it's this very, very lazy stereotype about women writers. And they're just written off as these mad poets who, oh, they were always going to kill themselves. And it's, you know, it almost becomes a joke. And I just wanted to to explore and try to perhaps argue that there's a bit more going on here, you know. First of all, let's blast that useless and quite annoying stereotype out of the water because it's not helpful, it's sexist, it's misogynistic. We don't need it in our lives. And think about what is actually going on in their lives and try to look for a more multidimensional explanation. Yes, of course, there might well have been psychological reasons, maybe for all I know, even physiological reasons why some people are more prone to depression than others. But also there are environmental reasons too. And I think when you look at their upbringings, you can certainly see elements that took place there that would have created trauma in both of their lives. You know, for Plath, the loss of her father, for Anne Sexton potentially being sexually abused by her father, although this is not confirmed and we have to be quite careful about that. But certainly the way that Sexton wrote about it and spoke about it in therapy, there's certainly a big question mark over that. Um, her Sexton's emotionally distant mother as well. So, you know, she was constantly wanting her mother's love and never quite getting it and getting disapproval instead. 
in contrast, we have Plath, who had, you know, in her own words, quite a suffocating mother who didn't let her breathe. That was, you know, she shared a bedroom with her until she was, you know, in her late teens, early 20s. So, you know, they had these perhaps unusual elements in their formative years that I think would certainly have influenced their future behaviour, perhaps their future mindset and and how they how they were able to negotiate their own way through the world as well. I love how you joke. You were like, maybe they joked at, at one of these martini afternoons about the fact that they each got the wrong mother for the kind <laughs> that they needed for their personalities. And like, perhaps they should have swapped. <laughs> worked out a lot. I mean, I know... I know that, yeah, I mean, I guess speculating like that isn't the best thing to do, but it's so tangent to They had such great senses of humor. And, I, and I'm sure if they mourned about their mom, they were like, oh, you should have mine and I'll have yours. You know, you could just picture that conversation, especially after the third martini. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things. And I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help and I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy. And you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. The thing that I really loved in this book, well, many things, but that you clearly have had in your hands, these artifacts of the women, right? Like the address books and even the image of the Anne Sexton's lock of baby hair on like a pink tissue carefully wrapped and, and Sylvia Plath's like longer, you know, ponytail or something. I mean, it, it almost like gave me the chills thinking that you must be 
you know, you today looking at these items, like tell me what that feels like. And obviously you wrote about it really powerfully, but what did it feel like for you having to remember that these are not just fictitious people? These are actual real living people, multidimensional with like belongings. And tell me, just tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm never happier when I'm in an archive <laughs> and um, <laughs> kind of handle these possessions and to handle manuscripts and personal artifacts. And as you say, hair, uh, typewriters, you know, pressing the keys that Anne Sexton pressed and that Sylvia... So it's a very evocative experience. It's a very, in a kind of, in sociology language, we would use the word spectral or ghostly. It's a very ghostly experience. and, And I feel, you know, a kind of a sense of, of them, of them being there in some way, because you know, what are we? We we are made up of the things that we own, the things that we are, our hair, things. You know, it's like having a part of them there with you. And and I've just written a short piece actually that will be coming out in America in a couple of months about combining that with audio as well. So not only you know having their hair and having their handwriting and their address books, but listening to them. And it's like they're over your shoulder. It's, you know, you can almost feel them breathing on you. And so it's it's an experience that that I both love in terms of just it's very immersive, but also I think it really humanizes them as well. You know, we have a tendency to mythologize these women because they were so brilliant and they were so good at what they did, and they almost seem superhuman, but then you see a draft of an early poem where there's really clunky sentences and it really doesn't work. And you think, oh, they, they were actually human after all. <laughs> they were really bad. I mean, they were brilliant and it ended up brilliant, but, you know, they didn't always get it right. And so that kind of, I love that human aspect of them as well. And, you know, you can have a, a Plath manuscript and it's got a coffee ring encrusted you know, or, Ansex, or, or so many of Ansex's papers have cigarette burns in them where she's obviously been smoking and the ashes dropped in, onto her papers. And so it's very, very evocative. And Ansexon's address book still smells of nicotine, which is also very odd as well. Wow. But it's like traveling time, traveling back in time, you know. I gosh, I love that. So what is it about their time together that you feel is worth noting the intersection of actually when they got together and like obviously their disparate careers and lives and the intersection of those are, are fascinating but what is it that drew you to these afternoons for example like why structure the book in that lens if you will or, or was it a device created in the how you decided to write the book and maybe I should ask how you decided to structure the book in general I think that the first thing that I wanted to think about with the book was that although it was being called a dual biography I wanted it to have a particular I wanted to look at them through a particular lens which was their rebellion and the thing that I found particularly fascinating about them and also something quite maddeningly elusive about them is that their lives collided for this really short period of time. So they didn't see that much of each other. I mean, they maybe would have had six, seven, eight martini afternoons together. It wasn't many. And they didn't really spend that much time in each other's company because shortly after meeting Plath went back to England at the end of 1959 and so they stayed in touch by writing to each other, but again, not hugely frequent letters. And 
also quite maddeningly, Anne Sexton's side of that correspondence is missing. So we only have Plath's letters to Sexton. And so what I what I found fascinating was that this moment in time, this collision that happened between their two lives, then kind of sparked off this whole influence on each other. Because initially when they met, if you read Plath's journal, she's so jealous of Sexton. She's furious. You know, she's kind of waking up at three in the morning, absolutely raging because Sexton's got published in places and she hasn't and Sexton's got a book contract and, and Plath hasn't. So there's this raging jealousy that then in the poetry workshop, Robert Lowell makes them work together. And then obviously something happens there and they become friends. And so they start going out for these martini afternoons, which I imagine were an absolute riot. So I, I imagine they were great fun. Accompanied by George Starbuck, who was another poet in the workshop. And so I really wanted to use those very few, very short meetings to kind of meander off through the book. So the book isn't necessarily, it's kind of chronological, but it isn't because I didn't want, you know, Plath was born in 1932, you know, and then I, I, I wanted it to, to, be a little bit more interesting in terms of exploring some of those themes. So I tried to structure it in a way that would perhaps make sense to people who didn't know too much about their lives, but would also allow me room to use this particular lens of rebellion to explore their lives in terms of all the ways in which they were rebellious, all the ways in which they weren't, and when they weren't, why might that be? There were certain things that they were still hanging on to. And so that was the kind of theory behind this the structure of the book really but I just I just thought that you know the idea of drinking martinis in an afternoon in the Ritz I mean it's so glamorous as well isn't it totally. <laughs> I hope you're planning on eventually having some sort of Ritz centered party where everybody drinks oh, martinis as soon as possible <laughs> please invite me I will come across the planet yeah, definitely <laughs> Definitely invited. Yes, I would like have it. more than three three martinis though. Okay, great. <laughs> wow. So, what do you think if they were our age today? These ladies. First of all, do you think they would be on medication? Do you think they would be like? What do you think their lives would be like? What do you think they would have contributed? What like? What do you What do you think? I mean, I would have hoped in terms of their mental health, they would have received much uh, better, more effective, less barbaric treatment. They were both subjected to really quite traumatic experiences as the chapter on on mental illness explores, particularly Plath with her botched ECT that she received. So, and um, Linda Grace Sexton has written about her mum that she does believe that if her mum had been alive today, she would have been properly medicated, you know, and, and would have hopefully had a much more comfortable happier life uh, so that you know you would kind of hope that in, in in terms of what I mean it's really interesting to think what they might have made of things like Twitter <laughs> I mean I think certainly they both probably would have been great at Twitter because they were so good at, at witty one-liners but you know and whether that I yeah I mean whether they would have blocked or not I don't know because I mean it it's certainly towards the end of Platt's life it looked as if she was going to increasingly be doing, for example, uh, becoming a critic. So she was, you know, she'd got a job on the BBC on on a programme called The Critics where she would be reviewing books and theatre and and I guess music and and things like that. So it would have been interesting that she might have become 
a bit of a social commentator herself, you know. So I guess if she had access to the social media, that, that would have been useful for her. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, Sexton, I think it'd be interesting because Sexton was a writer who worked so hard on her draft. You know, she she worked and worked and worked and reworked sometimes 20, 30 times. And I imagine if she was trying to blog doing that, she'd be completely exhausted. So, <laughs> so it, I mean, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to think how they would operate. I think they'd see a lot of similarities. Some things haven't moved on at all, have they? Very true. So now, of course, you as a woman have added your own book into this you know, <laughs> infinite universe of of literature written by women about things, and you have your own commentary on everything as it's seen through this lens. So, where do you go from here? What is next for you? What would you like to see happen with your own career? And like, what's coming up? Are you going to keep delving deep into these women? Do you have another book coming? Will this be a movie? That was a lot of questions. <laughs> well, I I do have another book coming, and I. Hopefully the publisher will be talking about that quite soon. I'm just at the contract stage. I can say it's not about Plath or Sexton. So I'm I'm moving away from those two lovely ladies for a little while, although they'll always be be part of my life. So um, so yeah, there'll be another book. And and then kind of around this book, I'm writing sort of shorter, shorter pieces that will be coming out. So pieces about working with their audio and also a piece about choosing photographs for the book, because I think photographs are so important. And I love writing about photography. And so, and I spent quite a lot of time deciding which photographs should go into the book. So, um, so writing a piece about that. And so there's lots of, you know, little things that will be going on around the book that are not in the book, but will be also about the process of, of putting the book together as well. And then it will be yeah straight into straight into the next book, which of course is going to be really difficult with because we're still kind of in lockdown in the UK, so no no international travels allowed. And I could do with being in some archives as well. So trying to it's it's interesting trying to negotiate research when you can't leave your house. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that sounds great. I can't wait to hear what your next project is. And by the way, the book trailer that you have for this book with the pictures. I don't know if you picked those pictures for the trailer, but those were awesome. I just loved it. I mean, oh, it was great. So. Yeah. They're the pictures that are in the book. So. Okay. Great. Interesting. Love it. Well, what advice would you have for aspiring authors? I think it takes, and I think this comes across in, in through Martinez as well. I think it takes a lot of persistence. It takes a lot of patience it takes a lot of ma- managing your own emotions, I think, because writing is such a personal thing. And sometimes things can feel quite devastatingly personal when they're not, you know. So, you know, getting rejections and things like that are, are really difficult to manage. And somehow, I, I don't know how, somehow you have to hang on to self-belief even in the face of really terrible times you have to believe that you can carry on doing it and I think a a big difference for me was I'd previously published three books but the big difference for me with this book is that I I was really really lucky to, to get an agent and a really good agent who we get each other we're completely on the same page we have the you know the same interests and although that may not be that relevant it, it makes working together really enjoyable so and I think having an agent is 
a good idea for an aspiring writer if you can get one just because you have that extra support and you feel much less alone as well when, when you have an urgent. Excellent. And the other thing I do is try to connect with other writers too, particularly if you get a bad review or if you get a, a, a rejection because everybody's been there. And it's just quite nice to be able to share that and then also be able to share the really good news and the exciting news and just, you know, because it's very solitary. And I think that's the biggest challenge for me as a writer is just how isolated you can be. And, you know, because it's something that you mainly do by yourself. And I also live by myself as well. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm kind of quite keen to network and, and get to know the writers and but it is, as Plath and Sexton write about so eloquently, it's about persistence. Wow. Well, Gail, thank you so much. I'm so impressed by just how great a researcher and author and how you bring these women so to life and what a joy it is to read about them and learn more and really view them now as like whole. I, I just feel like I know them much better. And I've already been very interested in Sylvia Plath over the years and felt like I knew enough, which I obviously did not. So I just, my hat's off to you. <laughs> so thank you oh, so thank much. Thank you so much. That's really nice. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you. And hopefully I can connect you to lots of other authors because I'm always talking to authors and <laughs> would love to put you in touch with whoever. So yes. Well, that would be really nice. Thanks. Okay. Perhaps so, at the Ritz. So. And <laughs> even better. Even better. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much for all your time. <laughs> thank you, Slumberkins, for sponsoring today's episode. Again, use code ZIBBY10 to get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.